I'm pretty excited to be here this week. How about you? That's wonderful. I'm so glad that so many of us have gathered together to study this very, very important question. Our identity. I think it's foundational. Before we get into the Word, let's all bow our heads in a word of prayer. Almighty God, it is so good for us to be here. Lord, it's been a year, and there's been a lot of calluses, a lot of slips and falls, a lot of distractions along the way. Father, we want to come aside. We want to leave all the busyness, all the noise, all the distraction and come and sit at your feet. Father, we pray that you would speak to us. Your your living word would cut through the dullness of our heart and that you would bring new light into our hearts and souls. You would penetrate and that you would bring fruit in our lives. Father, you know our needs and we rely on you completely to be glorified through your name. And through your word, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I guess, like most of you, this is uh, my first chance to appreciate the banner that uh, Brother Laza has, uh, has designed. And I thought I would speak about one of the things on the banner. And since the Bible, God's kingdom, is usually a kingdom that is reverse of what our expectation and the first shall be last, I thought I'd talk about the last. Not I, but the question mark. Because I think there's a lot of confusion about who we are. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and read a few verses about how that might be. Romans chapter 1. Start with verse 18. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, starting from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Hold, another word there could be suppress. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. You're probably familiar with this passage. It talks about the universal truth of God, the general revelation that every single human being has access to, that He is. And our response to that truth and the implications. Some might say that I heard recently that questioning whether we were created is kind of like creation, 
Our existence is a gift. It's kind of like going, getting a birthday present and going to the store and asking for a, uh, a receipt, purchase receipt. You are here. You know you've been created. You know you exist. In fact, a lot of things about God are obvious from not only your existence, from your uh, personality. We know that God must be greater, therefore He at least has a personality. We know God must be very great as we see the extent of His creation. We see His wisdom, His power. But we respond to that and we choose... Mankind has chosen to not be thankful, to not glorify Him, and as a result, they, they, their foolish heart becomes darkened. And we see then the progression. We see how sin enters in. We see disobedience to parents. We see uh, gossip and backbiting and pride and boasting and inventing of evil things. We see uh, murder. We see perversion of all kinds, sexual perversion, and that all these things come from this ignoring that God is there. You might say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I had a conversation with someone recently, um, you know, a very decent person. Why do I need to believe there's a God? What difference does it make? I, I live a pretty good standard, better than a lot of Christians I know. Why do I need to believe in God and respond to Him? Why does that need to be such a foundation in my life? <clears throat> Last week, uh, we had a, a group of our youth. We went up to uh, Lake Simcoe. Uh, we have a pretty primitive piece of property there, but the water is beautiful. And uh, it's very shallow, far out, hundreds of yards. And so the young people took out some rafts and some floating devices to enjoy the water. And I, I made sure that I had an anchor because I've been there before. I know what happens. And sure enough, I looked out a few, uh, half an hour, an hour later, and there was one of the inner tubes floating halfway uh, along the lake. And I had to go rescue it with a canoe. But, you know, th this happens so subtly, you don't realize it. It's right there next to you. And you're enjoying your time with your friends, throwing the ball or whatever, and, and it's right there. And it, you wouldn't uh, notice that it, it's moving because it's at such a slow rate, but it does move. And before you know it, it's in the reeds or down the river or across the lake, and it's very difficult to get. Now imagine, imagine starting to lose track of that and being blind. Imagine that you knew the truth. It was right there. You could touch it and you felt you could reach out and have it anytime you liked. You grew up in the shadow of that truth. It was an assurance to you. It was a bedrock of your life and it made you feel secure. It prepared you well for life and for success because you had good godly principles that you were raised with but you don't think you need it right now. And so you let it drift. But in that act, when we are not thankful for the giver of the gifts, the creator, and we think we can manage life on our own, 
our wisdom that we think we can do things better than God becomes darkness and we can't see and we lose track of those morals and things drift and they go farther than we ever expect. The implications of trying to come up with a life without God, of basing a life without God, are very far-reaching. As an extreme example, if we have to come up with an alternative story to God creating the world, the one that kind of makes sense when we see the complexity, the design, that you have to really have a lot of faith to think these things assemble themselves, it's, it's astronomical, it's 10 to the 150th, the, the probability that even one little protein might assemble itself. But, you know, beyond the math, the science, look at the implications. If you really believe evolution, where does that lead you? In November 7th, 2007, an 18-year-old, Pekka Eric Albanen, walked into his school in Finland. He carried with him a semi-automatic small-bore pistol. And he started shooting. And he ended up killing eight and wounding many of the students. Why did he do that? Because he believed in evolution. You see, because he had as his screen name, his uh, Facebook name, Natural Selector. He felt that he needed to help evolution along. You know, since... since if you believe evolution, then you answer this question as, I am just a random collection of chemicals that happen to come together at this point in time. I really have no inner worth. And so the only thing of value is that we progress this, the uh, evolution. And since he thought he was smarter than everyone else, he thought he'd get rid of, in fact, here is his words, I am a natural selector as a natural selector, will eliminate all who I see unfit, disgraces of human race, and failures of natural selection. It's scary. Where will take you? But really, it makes sense. If that's who you are, you have no value. And the strongest, the fittest, the guy with the biggest gun is going to have his way. Might makes right. <clears throat> this world without God doesn't make sense. And I encourage you to just take a moment, instead of saying, I'm okay, I'm right next to the truth, I'm good, realize where this leads. The confusion, the darkness that the Bible speaks of when we don't take God as our foundation. I like to read a little poem. This is facetious. It's tongue-in-cheek humor. It's Someone who's saying, if this is what you believe, this is kind of how silly it gets. Creed. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe that everything's okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. That sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better. Despite evidence to the contrary, the evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. 
Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral he was a good moral teacher, although we think that some of his good morals were really bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the ones we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ in matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, then it's mandatory heaven for all, except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson, what selected is average, what's average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society, society is the fault of conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that every man must find the truth that's right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly, the universe will readjust, history will alter, we believe there's no absolute truth, accepting the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds. And then as a postscript, if chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky, and when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, youths go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. This creed by Steve Turner, I think, shows us the fallacy in trying to build a life without taking God as the foundation of who am I, of how relativism and how all these uh, things that make us feel good, that make us feel that we can do our own thing without answering to God, lead us to a very bad place that lead us to a dark place of confusion and violence as we see in our society has drifted over the past few decades. Now you'll say, Edmund, you know, that's all very nice and philosophical. You know, can you bring this a little bit down to earth and maybe a little more relevant to your audience? Uh, we aren't atheists. We're here at church camp. We came here because we do believe that there is a God. And we do believe that we were created. And so it's very clear that you are not so many cents of random chemicals. You are actually created in the image of God. And you have value as such. And so does everyone else. Implications that I'm sure we will explore throughout this week, especially on, on Thursday. So how does this relate to us. I've been reading in his, uh, the Old Testament kind of in chronology, so I'm spending some time in some rather depressing books, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Lots of great nuggets in there, but you see God's disappointment with his people. And here's one passage I'd like to share with you. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 33. And at the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 30. <clears throat> also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and the doors of the houses, and speak to one another, everyone to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, 
and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear my words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. So we're here at Eastern Camp 2013. A year has gone by. We have heard God's voice as it spoke to us very clearly from these very walls, from the Bible classes last year, from the sermons, from the inspiration hours. Our hearts were touched. My dear friend, I'm sure you felt the call of God on your life. You felt Him drawing. You saw His love as he, we portrayed His Son hanging on the cross for you. You heard His words. Have you done them? What have you done about them? Was it entertainment? Was it a pleasant voice? An interesting twist? An engaging speaker? Or was it the Word of God that you have to do something about? My dear brother and sister, we heard challenging truth. We heard brothers pour out their heart and talk to us about depraved indifference. Are we looking at our watches and saying, well, this isn't quite fitting and in the time frame, let's get on to the next thing. We want to hear the inspiration hour. Or are we looking at our hearts and saying God has a message and He wants us to change. I like to point out one other identity that perhaps you haven't been thinking about. We know we're not random chemicals. But what are we? What is the identity that we choose to portray? I mean... You can imagine the teenagers have spent a lot of time preparing for camp and not necessarily in their Bibles. They spent a lot of time choosing the right clothes, making sure they would have the right look, uh, picking out the right activities that would showcase their talents. I heard one teenager giving uh, a younger sibling some advice, and it made me very sad. Going to camp, younger sister... And now you're going to have to put on a, some sort of, you have to get an identity so that people can relate to you. So they can, can uh, so you can get some kind of uh, social acceptance. And you've got to be careful, don't let the real self show. And, you know, it was really, really sad to me that we feel that when we come here to camp, we need to put on an act. We can't be real. We can't just be who God created us. That we have to think we have to somehow do or buy or act a certain way. And you know, camps really becomes a very stressful place. 
It's a very stressful place because, you know, there's a lot of people around you and you don't have a lot of privacy and you're being scrutinized all the time and maybe they're going to see some cracks in that plastic facade. That's not what God intended. And that's not what, how camp's going to benefit you. We need to let go of that plastic facade. One way, I'd say a very common way that Western society chooses an identity is they do it through their dollars. We see that these people here, they were actually people of God. He was not talking to atheists. He wasn't talking to people who didn't know who God was. They came and they sat as God's people, but they wanted things they didn't have, covetousness. And that led them to be insincere in their listening to God. We in the Western society are consumers. And it's often called a consumer society. And there's a lot of effort. And it's not just about money and stewardship and, and about... Um, Keeping up with the Joneses about this kind of arms race where you got to keep up or be left behind. To some degree, it's actually about who am I? You see, your clothes signal to other people who you are, your purchases. I, I got trapped in this the other week. I was, was a few months ago, I, there was a grand opening sale at Canadian Tire. You Americans may not know it, it's just a large department store and uh, things were really cheap you know and that's there's a 200 billion dollars spent on advertising to to really play games with you there's a web the Bible says us that we shouldn't be ignorant of of the devices of Satan we should not be ignorant of how this industry manipulates us you know there's the deal you know and you you made money it's kind of like gambling you know I'm on a roll and, you know, I, I, I want to keep playing because I'm going to make more money by spending more money. And, you know, it, just like the house never loses when it's gambling, don't worry. The, you're not going to collapse the store you're buying these deals from. But you think you're winning. And so you continue on the roll. And there's all kinds of other things. There's the promise where we sell cars as if they are, you know, Pontiac builds excitement, or they, they you know, it's, 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 it's not just, if we had just told you, this is a car, it's got two more features, and it looks a little different than last year, they're not going to sell it. They're telling, you know, you are going to become, you know, some man that all the women are going to look up to because you're driving this thing with, you know, the, the, fourth, the fifth wheel grips you, and all kinds of stuff. They're selling a promise that they can't keep. There's also, you know, it's new. And you're on the next wave and you gotta you gotta keep up and, and, and there's new stuff on the horizon and who knows, you know, there's 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 new technology in this thing and it's got can do this and it can do that and and uh, you know there's new I mean why would you ever watch a sports game? But you know it's the same guys playing over the same ball in the same field, but but it's a new team and you gotta know what's gonna happen this year. Or, you know, new T V show and new T V series and you gotta keep up. And we, Satan makes sure there's just such a flood of new coming. And then there's bombardment. In American Idol, there were 4,950 product placements during the watching of that. 
You know, a lot of them have to do with Coca-Cola. In fact, the scientists can measure the part of people's brain that lights up when they see Coca-Cola has to do with relationships, has to do with love. We've got, been so brainwashed, literally, that we have relationships with brands and logos. And they have this emotional response in us. So here I am. I'm being played with. And uh, I find myself in the tools department. And, you know, there's such good deals. I go beyond the, 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 the branch clippers that I do need. And I say, you know what? I'm going to buy this grinder here. I always wanted a grinder because, you know, I can sharpen my tools. And maybe I can, you know, what's really going on there is they're selling me an identity. They're saying, you buy enough of our gear and our clothes and stuff, you will become a do-it-yourselfer. You know, and if you go over these other aisles, you buy enough stuff over here, you'll become a great huntsman or, or a fisherman. And you go over here, you'll become a mechanic and you can fix your car and you can do all kinds of stuff. You'll have this, like, identity. You go over there and you can even become a chef. You know, good thing I didn't try that. My family would eat poison. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I, I did fall for this one, but my, my, my father-in-law quickly rescued me from the illusion that I'd ever become a do-it-yourselfer, and he told me to go return it. <clears throat> but my, my point is that uh, these, they're not selling you products. They're selling you an identity. And you, you can look around you. You can see that, you know, the cut of the jeans, the messages on the T-shirt, the haircut... The, the, the gear, the vacations, you can get your sophisticate, you know, who's got the, the theater tickets or your fashionista who's got, you know, the same look as the latest magazine. You've got, you know, your counterculture hipsters. You've got all these areas and all of them have gear and stuff and things that you can buy in order to have an identity. We're no longer defined by our father's uh, profession and we're, we're just smith because he was a blacksmith no we're defined by what we buy and we buy ourselves stuff and then and then you got an identity and then then you got trophies so it's not just tribes that we can gather around the stuff and you can belong to multiple tribes it's okay you can be a do-it-yourselfer and you know a huntsman or whatever um not too many are chefs but you know there's there's brand groupings the advertisement call call them. And then you've got trophies win that, you know, you've got, if you're into the bling scene, you know, that's like the hottest car, you know, the biggest piece of jewelry. If you're into, you know, the sports scene, you know, it's who's got the tickets, the latest game, you know, there's stuff you can buy as trophies that kind of determine your status within your tribe. And it, it's real. And we're being suckered in. And my point is that The world might get fooled by this, but should we? If we are God's people, are we getting sucked into a whole materialistic lifestyle where we've got to keep up because so much depends on it that it starts to choke and compete with and crowd out God's priorities for our lives? And, and what's really the who am I behind this? One thing that's popular these days are, are bucket lists. You know what that is? It's, it's a list of things you're supposed to get to before you kick the bucket. 
And so, you know, there's the, the hundred books to read before you die. There's the hundred films to see before you die. There's, you know, a hundred places, thousand places to visit before you die. There's even a hundred Belgian beers to try before you die. I mean, you're going to be really busy if you're going to keep up with these bucket lists and get all this stuff done. And, and, and people, you know, this is the slogan, you know, Pepsi says maximize your life, you know, with Max Pepsi or, you know, uh, you know they, 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 it's all about this theme of seize the day because, or we know in the Bible as eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And this whole reason behind the stress of maximizing life, of just cramming it in, of trying to get it all in there and, and, and get in not only the stuff but the experiences and, and just kind of bag them all. The motivation behind this was kind of uh, shed some light on by, by Hollywood. They, they had a, a movie about uh, called Dead Poet Society and the, and the p- poetry teacher, he's, he's teaching a bunch of students and, and they're uh, re- reading a poem, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. And old time is still a-flying, and this flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. They say, now what does this mean? What's the thinking behind this? You know, it's carpe diem. That's Latin for seize the day. Why do you think the poet is saying this? And uh, the, the, the students say, well, maybe the poet's in a rush. Maybe he's thinking 20th century. But the, po- the, the teacher says, no. He says, we're food for worms, lads. Because we've only got going to experience a limited number of springs, summers, and falls, one day hard is to believe each and every one of us is going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. You see, the driving force behind all this material acquisition is a despair and a terror that this is all there is. It's about who am I? I'm just going to become nothing because the dead say nothing. That... I've got to cram it in now, no matter what the cost, because this is all there is. And this is the lie, and we are being sucked in by the the drag of this current. An American psychologist, Thomas Pizinski, uh, described shopping as a protective shield designed to control the potential for terror that results from awareness of the horrifying possibility that we humans are merely transient animals groping to survive in a meaningless universe destined only to die and decay. Isn't that sad? And you know the truth. You know you're not food for worms. You know that you have a soul that will live forever. You know that this world is not all you got. You know that if you don't, you know, experience the Greek islands in this life, God's got something better than that in the next. You don't know if you, you, don't, ha- you don't have to die into this maximizing philosophy. But the people around you are drowning in despair. They're drowning in their terror management techniques of consume, consume, consume. And they need someone who's different. Someone who shows that they have a little clearer grasp on who they are, that they are more than worm food, that they are precious children of Almighty God. You see, 
I think it's very important that we change our unchecked assumptions about who I am. I'm so glad we're here this week. I'm so glad we're studying this question because I don't think we thought it through. I sat down with a couple of, of co-workers just this past week and said, how would you think the average person thinks about this question? I wanted to get some, some kind of ideas from them. And they say, you know, to be honest, we don't think about it. We haven't thought it through. It's not something that we take the time and it has such far-reaching implications for how we live our lives and how we'll spend eternity. You see, the truth is that you are not purchasers. You are purchased. The truth is that you are not purchasers, but purchased. The Scripture tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you're bought with a price. Therefore, therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. <clears throat> and, and the Scripture tells us in, in Matthew chapter 6, it says, <clears throat> Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. <clears throat> It says, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. We're given a choice. What, do we, what really moves us? What motivates us to get up in the morning? What motivates us to get off the couch? Is it gold or God? What is it that we find that really gives us a drive to, to, to act? and to pour out the God-given energies and talents that we have. We need to make a decision. And, and he, he explains, look, look at the birds, look at the flowers. They're provided for, you know, why are you so stressed out about stuff? <clears throat> says, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles, the heathen, the unbelieving seek. You, for your heavenly Father knoweth ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. <clears throat> seek ye first the kingdom. Don't be like, don't live like. You might not be an unbelieving heathen. You may be a Christian, you may come regularly to church, but does your life show that this is not what you're about? Are we countercultural? Are we willing to break free from the grip of, of buying our identities? Because bought identities are not worth having. The plastic face of those things that are always changing and always external and always fragile and, and the stuff you have and, the, and, and the, the people's opinion of you, these things change from moment to moment. And you, you want to build on that sinking sand or do you want to build on the solid rock? You are not random chemicals. You are created in the image of God. You are not worm food. You have an eternal soul that has one of two destinies. 
that will live forever and you feel it intuitively in your gut, you know you're more than worm food. You know that you're destined to live forever. But you are also so much more. This week, we're going to look into that. We're going to look into what the Bible says about what it means to be redeemed, what it means to be adopted, what it means to be set free, what it means to be a servant, what it means as we, as we examine these things throughout the week. I hope you realize this is important stuff. This changes so much. But at least I want you to get this one thing. You are loved with an everlasting love. It's right there in Ezekiel. You'll have to do some digging. You are loved. You don't have to dig for it. You only have to look at the cross. You have a heavenly Father. Because you see, all these identities that depend on fallible people and other stuff, you can find security in a relationship with the Heavenly Father who knows who you are, who knows the worst thing you've done and still loves you, loves you so much. You don't have to pretend with Him. doesn't matter what your wardrobe is or what skills you're showcasing. He knows He made you. Forget it. But He loves you. He knows who you are and he's, He knows you've blown it. He knows you're a rebel. He knows You've turned away from him. And yes, he's hurt. But like the prodigal son father, he stands on the hill and he looks out and he sees and he waits for you to come to yourself. And maybe this week will be the week that you will come to yourself. You'll realize, what am I doing in this pig slop? Why don't I just go back home and humble myself? I had it so much better. Stop drifting. Come home. And, and that, that father you know, in Middle Eastern um, culture, older gentlemen always walk sedately because they didn't want to expose their ankles. They didn't want to be improper. But he picked up his garments and he ran to save his son the embarrassment of coming through town and fell on his neck and gave him all. You have that kind of a loving father to return to. And he showed it by giving you what cost him the most. And that's really the meaning of the words, who am I, when you read them in Scripture. It's not just about identity. It's like, who am I that God would allow me to build this temple? Who am I that God would bless me in these incredible ways? Who am I? I'm overwhelmed. As the, the words of the song say, who am I that the king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will, thine Lord? The answer I may never know. Why he ever loved me so, to that old rugged cross he'd go, for who am I?